Please have your Bibles open again at Job 25. <coughs> the words of uh, Job 26 verse 14 are written uh, in the King James Version uh, over the entrance to the museum in Auckland, New Zealand. Lo, these are part of his ways, but how little a portion is heard of them. They are a humble acknowledgement by a generation more godly uh, than the current, more God-fearing people, of the limits to our human understanding and to the fact that uh, as we explore in science, we are exploring the ways of God. In 2011, uh, there was this great earthquake in Auckland, in the Auckland area, and one of the landmarks that was really hammered by the earthquake was the museum itself, uh, with this inscription from Job 26, 14, uh, over the entrance. The entrance, I think, was, was spared by the quake. And what was remarkable, actually, uh, in the context of this earthquake which brought in so much disruption, uh, was really what was not said in the text. The, the second part of verse 14, uh, which wasn't written, but the thunder of his power. Who can understand? God thundered uh, in the earthquake in Auckland. And we've been singing and we've been reading scripture that speaks of God speaking in great upheavals in the earth and in the seas. And in many ways, the, the earthquake-stricken museum, uh, with, with its Bible text, with the text from Job uh, over it, is a picture of what's going on in the book of Job itself, if you like. Job is someone who's deeply and sincerely looking for wisdom. He wants to understand God's ways, but he cannot his life was well-ordered according to the theories of his friend and indeed according to uh, the understanding of Scripture that Job uh, holds to. Uh, they were committed to the idea that good people prosper but the wicked meet with calamity. And as far as Job was concerned, everything was going well uh, with him and was going in accord with this uh, teaching of Scripture, this understanding of Scripture. His life, in fact, was like a museum uh, with a place for everything and everything in its place. And then an earthquake hit Job. Uh, he was hit by a tsunami of God's judgment. And he doesn't know what's going on. He has no access to the heavenly court in which Satan said, your servant Job uh, only uh, follows you because what he can get out of it because you have hedged him around. You've protected him. Remove the hedge of your protection and he will curse you to your face. Job lost his house, his farm, his livestock, his servants, his children. He lost the love and respect of his wife. He lost his health. He ends up sitting on a pile of ash, scraping uh, his skin with a shard. And his friends are still confident in their own wisdom. They're convinced Job is guilty of some serious sin. That's caused this uh, suffering, which is number 10 on the Richter scale. Uh, 
course they aren't aware, it's Job isn't aware of what has gone on behind the scenes. And they come and they bring uh, lots of orthodoxy, but really with no insight, no true wisdom to help Job understand what is going on. And Job's great dilemma is that he fears that because he's suffering in the way he is, that God is treating him like an enemy. Uh, It has to be God. If it is not he, then who is it? Job has already asked. He has huge questions to ask. But, and we saw this last week, he never moves away from his commitment to God and the character of God. And that's what makes it so difficult for Job. He has experienced the goodness of God. And we said last time that when we are struggling with with big questions in life, uh, God doesn't deny us the the, the right to question, but the believer will begin with what he knows to be uh, true and sure, what is plain from Scripture, and will, from that position of faith, seek understanding. And that's where Job is such a good example uh, to us. He's troubled. He's wrestling with big issues. But he is rooted to the the reality of God and the goodness of God. And so the question of wisdom is central to uh, all these speeches, these cycle of speeches. And we wonder why are there so many of them? But the the question is an enormous one. How do we understand our suffering? How can we reach God? Is there any hope for sinful people? And Job's friends have served up their observations. And their observations are all wrapped up tightly in really what we'd call in Eastern religion terms, karma. You get your deserts. If you're good, you get on. If you're bad, you get your commandments. Of course, that's very much what what people believe today. You know, some uh, crisis hits them and they think, what did I do to deserve this? Here we have Bildad's last words. And it's interesting that uh, it's so brief, isn't it? They've almost kind of run out of steam at this point. Uh, He's got very little to say. Uh, and so the, the, the kind of record that's got stuck, this record of retribution, uh, is coming to an end now uh, in a kind of stuttering speech by Bildad. Bildad, the armchair theologian. Bildad, whose words are true and at one level glorious, but he doesn't say what matters. Uh, He has got essentially two truths in regard to to God and us, uh, which are unquestionably true. God is glorious. God is majestic. He is, what we say, transcendent. He is away above us. He inhabits uh, the high and lofty place. And equally, uh, we are... uh, down there, we are uh, maggots, worms, helpless sinners. God is in heaven glorious. We are uh, helpless sinners. True truths. And 
the transcendent God is the God who keeps order. And order, uh, as we see all along, is very important to the comforters. They want to, to have uh, a universe which is well-ordered. They want a vending machine where uh, you put in your, your coin of good works and you get the, the reward of, of uh, prosperity. Uh, conversely, uh, evil gets its proper desert. It's an ordered universe, according to the friends. And so dominion and all belong to God. He establishes order in the heights of the heavens, says Bildad. That's the way it is. That's the way it's meant to be. How then can a mortal be righteous before God? How can one born of woman be pure? Man is maggot-like in his sin, Bildad says. There's no possibility of being righteous before God. And that's the truth, isn't it? Uh, that those are part of the gospel. Uh, but that's the point. They're only part of the gospel. If you, if you were to tell people that God is uh, overall sovereign and that we are helpless sinners, that God is transcendent, he inhabits the glories of heaven and we're down here and we are maggots, worms, lost in sin. Where's the hope in that? There's no word of a God who in condescension reaches down. A God who is uh, full of mercy. A God who provides a way. No word of what Job has had insight of. That there is a redeemer who will stand on the last day. No mention even in terms of what he has to say of a man. Of man's past communion with God. No mention of man's original goodness and of a fall from sin. No mention of a word even in the Garden of Eden of uh, a redeemer. Uh, no mention of the, the seed of the woman who would come and who would crush the serpent's head and be bruised himself on the cross of Calvary. In short, what Bildad's saying sounds good, but in actual fact, it's anti-gospel. It's robbing the gospel of its power. There's no word of salvation in Bildad's well-ordered word. So we come to chapter 26. Bill, uh, Job replies uh, to uh, Bildad. You have to, I think you have to try and think yourself into the personality of Job as you read the chapters. I, uh, for my part, I grow in my admiration for this man as a human being. Uh, what spirit Job has. Uh, what dignity he has. We see his spiritedness in his response to, to Bildad. Uh, he speaks, he responds with biting irony. Uh, later on, we will see his dignity in refusing uh, to be browbeaten into uh, coming up with uh, a confession of sins that he knows he has not committed in order to satisfy their, their kind of well-ordered system. But here in chapter 26, uh, he responds to, to Bildad's puffed-up piety uh, with biting sarcasm. How you've helped the powerless. How you've saved the arm that is feeble. It's just dripping with irony, isn't it? Thank you very much. These few words have solved all my problems. You know, you can go away now, work, done. Who has helped you utter these words? Whose spirit spoke from your mouth? 
Uh, he has he's burst the bubble of Bildad's pomposity. He's come with, uh, he's the, the, the orthodox um, uh, balloon. He's the, the guy who's come with, with truths, but only half truths, rather than a complete truth. And because he hasn't given the, the full biblical picture, he, he, he really has imparted no wisdom. And that's so much what it's like in the world, isn't it? There are so many purveyors of wisdom, people perhaps in official places, and even in the church, that you expect to have some wisdom from, and they have nothing to say, nothing to offer. Preacher Jeff Thomas, uh, who, who used to uh, minister in Aberystwyth in Wales, uh, uh, he spoke about the... the the vacuity of, of so many people who speak uh, wisdom or, or purport to speak wisdom. And he illustrated it with uh, a book that a man uh, by the name of Christopher Ross had written. Uh, he uh, wrote this book uh, which was reviewed in the Times newspaper and he had spent a year looking for wisdom on platform six of Oxford Circus Tube Station and he wrote a book uh, called Tunnel Vision uh, with his findings. So he spent uh, uh, his mornings working there as a station assistant for more than a year searching for truth and the meaning of life uh, in Platform 6 of Oxford Circus Tube Station. And the book is the distillation of his wisdom. What was the fruit of his year searching for wisdom uh, in the tube station. Well, uh, the reviewers who were impressed by his uh, sharpness and sense of humour said that it could be summarised as a plea to be calm and fulfilled in this accelerating world. What nonsense. What emptiness. Uh, Emptiness uh, that would contrast with the... uh, the billboards that we see quite often with Bible texts uh, on the walls of stations. Job hasn't been helped by the, the, the empty uh, comfort of uh, those who have come with orthodox sayings which have, have failed to actually grapple with the reality of Job's situation. He's a righteous man. He's he's been in communion with God and yet he's suffering and they haven't grappled with uh, his situation. And Job goes on after, uh, you know, rebuffing Bildad and and his words of advice. He goes on to extol the vast power of God, but he extols God's might in a way that goes beyond what Bildad and his friends have said. They have also spoken about God's power. But Job has got something additional to say about God's power. He speaks, first of all, of God's rule over the depths of creation. Uh, In the deep, under the waters of the deepest sea, lies death. Literally, Sheol, the place of the dead, and destruction, uh, which is literally uh, Abaddon. And these names uh, not only denote the place of the dead, but they are being used to personify uh, the power of death. We come across Abaddon again as a personification 
uh, later in chapter 28. The powers, the principalities of the evil. Uh, Paul tells us in Ephesians, our struggle is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world. God is mighty over the power of death. Uh, uh, his might is shown in all kinds of ways. It's shown in the providential sustaining of the earth. Uh, Job speaks of God like a, a builder who stretches out the northern skies. He holds the earth as though it were in a vice so that it does not uh, drop out of its orbit. In verse 8 uh, in chapter 26, we have the, uh, the, the kind of poetic uh, cosmology that we have in, in the, the uh, account in Genesis. He wraps up the waters in this clouds, yet the clouds do not burst under their weight. Uh, Genesis speaks about waters above the ceiling or the, the firmament of the sky. And Job's saying, God keeps these waters in place. These millions of tons of water just kept in place until God uh, providentially orders the cloudburst, we would say, and the rains come. So God is the God who upholds the, the heavens and the rains. Uh, he marks down like a line the horizon, separating the light from dark, chaos from order. But Job says, God is equally able to disrupt the order that he has established. That's something that his friends have not emphasized. Uh, verse 11, the pillars of the sea quake aghast at his rebuke. Friends have emphasized the neat pattern that there is in creation, but uh, we know that nature is not always a, a neat and orderly affair. There are these enormous disruptions, and Job has taken a swipe at his friends here. God's free to, to do as he pleases and to, to move from the, the regular pattern of doing things for his own glory. And then we come to verses 12 and 13 in chapter 26, and uh, it's language that we're not immediately familiar with, but the original readers would be very familiar with. Uh, names referring to the powers of evil. And first of all, there's the sea, and the sea is often seen uh, in the Old Testament as representing the, the great chaos. And so it can be used to, to symbolize powers of evil. And then verse 12, Rahab. Uh, Rahab is also the gliding serpent in verse 13, uh, also known as Leviathan. And this great sea serpent is the embodiment of all the anti-God forces of evil in the universe. But Rahab is no match for God. By the exertion of his power, he cuts Rahab into pieces. His hand pierced the gliding serpent. Now, again, we see Job, as he's done before, Job is speaking better than he knew. Uh, there's a, an echo, isn't there? We, we, we hear of, of a serpent being cut into pieces. And as biblically literate Christians, we, we ought to be thinking back to, to Genesis 3 and what God uh, spoke to the serpent in Eden about the seed of the woman who would come and would crush his head. And Jesus will come as the, the great serpent crusher. And Satan, that wily serpent, is going to be 
cut up uh, and at the end thrown into the lake of burning fire. And so we're fast forwarded to the outworking of God's mighty power on the cross uh, where Jesus uh, has victory over Rahab, a.k.a. the gliding serpent, a.k.a. Leviathan, power of evil, conquered by the Lord Jesus, the seed of the woman on the cross. And this is spoken about in the context of God doing these mighty upheavals right at the, at the, the core of his creation. There will be a mighty outpouring of God's wrath and power in overcoming evil. And we think about the cross. And we think about the signs and portents that accompanied that conquering of evil. The earthquake. The sky at noon darkened. And the graves giving up. The bodies of righteous men. If ever there was a disruption of the natural order, it was Calvary. The only sinless human who ever lived Dying as the great sufferer on the cross. And the earth convulsed. It's at this point that uh, someone else who, who also used, uh, uh, used myth and, and, and mythical ideas to communicate great truth, great Christian truth is, is helpful. C.S. Lewis and his children's stories. The Narnia stories. Uh, the Narnia books describe uh, this universe that has order held together by what C.S. Lewis calls deep magic. And the wicked witch knows how to use this divine order to her ends, and that by that law, wrongdoing must always be punished. Okay? It's what the friends are always harping on about, isn't it? That there's always retribution for wrongdoing. But Aslan, the majestic lion, the, 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 the Christ figure, uh, knows of deeper magic which subverts, gets under uh, the ordinary uh, magical reality. And as the story unfolds, this deeper magic uh, cracks the stone tablet and raises Aslan from the dead and brings about an ultimate restoration of all things. And so when, when Job speaks about the thunder of God's power and the defeat of evil, we're, we're brought to the cross and the, the thundering of God's power at Calvary and the conquest of the serpent. Chapter 27. Beware of opposing God's friends. Beware of opposing God's righteousness. Job's mood all the way through uh, this great book has been up and down. And we kind of expect that, wouldn't we? Job is someone who's uh, you know, very likely struggling with the real depression. Uh, these are horrendous things that have happened to Job. And yet all along there's a growing sense that God has not abandoned him despite his circumstances and that he has in heaven a redeemer. I know that my redeemer lives. This 
uh, assurance of faith that breaks through sometimes, like, like sun on a cloudy day. And so he opens his next salvo against his friends with this strong assertion of his own right standing before God. You see, for Job uh, to listen to his friends and to do what they want would be to really to turn his back on his integrity. They want him to confess that uh, he's been guilty of something so gross and so awful that uh, this suffering that he's going through uh, is a proper reflection of the sin. And, and Job's never saying that he's a perfect man, but he's saying that he's right with God. And, and, and here's where we, we admire Job's dignity. He's a great man. He's a big man. And he's saying, I will not, no account, uh, renounce my integrity. I will not tell a lie. I will not uh, confess a sin that I have no conscience of. I know my Redeemer lives. I know I'm right with God. I will maintain my righteousness and never let go of it. My conscience will not reproach me as long as I live. Some of you I know have read the book Wild Swans and Young uh, Chan, uh, the authoress of the book, uh, speaks of her, her father uh, and how he was a devoted member of the Communist Party uh, and was very enthusiastic for, for you know, the, the uh, reign of communists in China. Uh, he's a highly ethical man, uh, refuses to take a bribe. And then uh, the, the wind changes and the cultural revolution comes in with Mao and there's a suspicion of anyone who uh, could be at all thought of as bourgeois. And so officials like him are targeted and he is brought under tremendous pressure uh, to confess wrongs against others, uh, which, of course, he was not guilty of. And like Job... Uh, he refuses to renounce his integrity and he's sent to prison and he um, undergoes uh, all kinds of, of uh, uh, health uh, breakdowns. Well, Job's friends are, are seeking to do that and in doing so, they are essentially in an anti-gospel attitude. They're opposing Job's only hope, uh, which is the reality of a redeemer. And Job warns them that they face the very judgment that they have ascribed to him. Let my enemy, i.e. his comforters, he says, be as the wicked. And so he reminds them in chapter 27 of what they believe that will happen to the wicked. Uh, in verses 14 and 15, he warns about the implications for their families. Uh, the wicked uh, have the, uh, the, the, the evil doings of the wicked have implications for their children. Uh, their children face death. Their widows are uncomforted. Uh, the wicked person may heap up wealth as security. Uh, he says he may accumulate uh, wealth like great piles of dust. But in the end, that's all they are, dust. He may look for security in his grand home. And uh, presumably these comforters were living in, in uh, and grand wealthy homes like so many uh, opponents of, of Christianity today. Uh, and 
they may think that they have security uh, with their, their, their gated mansions and so on. And Job says your security is like the cocoon of a moth. It's like a hut uh, built by a watchman. And in the end, the wicked is carried off, uh, swept away uh, by the terror of death. He speaks of an east wind. It seems to be uh, a personification uh, of death. Uh, In chapter 27, the east wind carries him off. He's gone. It sweeps him out of this place. And then, as it were, uh, just cocks its snout at Job, mocks him in derision, claps its hand in derision, and hisses him out of his place. Beware, Job says, of the great mistake of opposing God's ways and opposing God's friends. Then we come to a change in feel because uh, as Ian read for us in chapter 27 and 28, come to chapter 28 and it feels different. It's like an oasis of calm. Uh, There have been all of these uh, turbulent speeches. And now it's as though uh, Job is given pause to reflect on this great search that he has for wisdom. And we have one of the most beautiful chapters in the whole of the book of Job, where the the value of wisdom is, is extolled in such a beautiful way. Job's no longer addressing his friends or God. He's turning to the great need for wisdom because that is what Job needs more than anything else just now. And it is, of course, what we need. It's the great gift that God has to give uh, that is extolled throughout the Bible. Uh, Wisdom for living. And, of course, that's not... Wisdom in the Bible is not knowing lots of stuff. It's not having your head filled with facts. You know, there are people whose heads are filled with facts. There are people who have got loads of degrees and they can be the most foolish people in the world. They can be inept when it comes to the key task of how to live well. And wisdom in the Bible is a very practical matter. It is living well before God. And it's what we need to know, isn't it? Uh, When we need guidance for for life, God doesn't promise us uh, signs and wonders to tell us exactly what to do at any stage. He asks us to seek wisdom that we might uh, live rightly. And so we have this beautiful, this exquisitely beautiful portrayal of, first of all, the value of wisdom. And Job in verses 1 to 11 of chapter 28, uses a picture of mining. So that's quite an appropriate picture for this district of Monklands, uh, mining. And the, the point that Job is making in the first 11 verses is that uh, wisdom is so valuable that uh, it can be compared to the, the efforts that people go into to extract ores from the the great depths of the earth, whether that's silver or gold or iron uh, and copper. There is a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth and copper is smelted 
from ore. And then uh, we have a picture of the mine in verses 3 to 11. Uh, miners going to work in remote valleys, far from human habitation. Uh, they excavate, put down deep mine shafts into the depths of the earth. And the miners risk their lives. And there's a uh, you know, very kind of striking picture in verse 4 of uh, the, the miners dangling uh, and swaying. So you can imagine the, the, the miners you know, being let down by a rope, dangling in a rope, or in a, 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 mine, a mining cage with uh, maybe one or two miners uh, in this, and the, the cage is, is swaying from side to side as it goes down the mine shaft. Incredibly risky endeavours. And they go where no bird of prey uh, or no wild beast has gone. And with their hands they lay bare the root of the mountains. Verse 11 pictures the miners tunnelling through the rocks. uh, And the miners' imagination is is fired by the prospect of the treasures that are to be found. And this prospect is spurring on the miner as he goes. And uh, this picture... uh, telling us about the the, the great enterprise that's involved in securing these ores and the tremendous dangers that are involved is saying two things. First of all, wisdom uh, is extremely valuable. But also, it's obtained only with difficulty. We just don't uh, fall out of bed and find that we're wise all of a sudden. It's something which is obtained with great difficulty. And that's underlined in this next section from verse 12 to 22. Uh, in fact, it seems that wisdom is so hard to find, it almost seems unobtainable. But where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? Man himself doesn't appreciate the value of wisdom, its worth. Um, if you went down into the depths of the oceans... You would not find it. Um, there's this picture of man going to these enormous lengths, thinking that he'll come across wisdom. And so it's going down. Uh, but it's interesting, isn't it, that we, we go the opposite way in our modern era. Uh, we go up and think of the billions of pounds that have been spent on space exploration. Uh, what are we looking for? People are, are kind of exploring these uh, trackless wastes, looking for insight of some kind. We would find wisdom going down or going up. Seems so well concealed. Where can you find it? Uh, Go to speak with destruction or Abaddon and death, Job says. They're going to look at you blankly. Uh, Speak to Abaddon and Abaddon is going to say, well, you know, I can't say I've ever come across wisdom. I did hear a vague rumour of it from somebody, but I couldn't tell you where to go. Sorry can't help you. So, Job's saying this, this wisdom, which is so valuable, is not discoverable by any skill or device. So, where's the answer? The answer is God alone can give it. Verse 23 to 28. God who sees everything in his creation in one sweep, who controls the force of the winds, the depths of the sea, The time of rainfall, this is the Lord who not only knows where wisdom is to be found, he has appraised it, he has tested it. Then we have God speaking 
for the first time uh, since the beginning of Job. And he said to man, The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. To shun evil is understanding. Here's the heart of the book of Job. Here's the heart of the Bible. (laughs) We are being diverted away from chasing after wisdom as some kind of a commodity. And we're being told wisdom is actually a relationship. We need to turn away, the Lord is saying, uh, if we want to be wise people, we need to turn away from seeking wisdom for its own sake. Because if we did actually find wisdom by that kind of search, we would simply become the kind of puffed up armchair theologians that Job's comforters are. And instead, we need to seek the Lord. The fear of the Lord. That is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. And once again, once again at the close of this beautiful chapter, the close of our meditation tonight, Job is pushing us again to Jesus. Because as God's revelation opens up in the New Testament, Jesus is the one who is disclosed to us as wisdom from God. Jesus is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And the wisdom he gives is not given to the wise and learned. He discloses himself to those who are like little children. If we are to be wise, we are to humble ourselves and become like little children. And we're to receive the wisdom that is Christ. Because being wise is walking before God. Because we have trusted his son as our saviour. And therefore, if you're not a Christian tonight, if you're not yet saved. And want to be wise. Job is telling you, the word of God is exhorting you, trust Jesus, be wise, place your faith in Christ. And as you walk with him, he will give you wisdom for life's path. A wisdom that is not found in any university or training college, but a wisdom that is real leads to glory. May God bless to us his word.